Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Our text for today comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boat used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, everybody. It's good to see you. Now, 733 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah penned the great poem that we just heard read. Uh, Judah at that time was basically Jerusalem. That was mostly what the kingdom of Israel looked like at the time. And they were in the midst of a political crisis, a national crisis, if you will. They were about to be conquered and carried away captive by the great empire of Assyria. The guy's name who was conquering them was Tiglath-Pizlar. Um, so luckily we didn't name our, our fourth child that. Um, would have been bad. Uh, Israel, at this point in the story, is on the precipice of the greatest disappointment they had ever experienced, or probably were ever going to experience. They were being displaced from the land that God had given them as their birthright. They were being separated from their families, from their traditions, even from their core identity as a people. Basically, the people of God, at this point in the story, are facing extinction. They're facing extinction. And in Isaiah 28, the verse that starts just before the passage we uh, read this morning, in Isaiah 8:22, we read this: "Then they will look forward, they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fear and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness." That sounds about right, doesn't it? If your people are about to be wiped out, if they're about to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians, it's kind of what you would expect a prophet to say. This is bad. This is all gloom and distress. It's not good, everybody, right? That's kind of what you would expect the prophet to say. And that is what Isaiah says in chapter 8, verse 22. But Isaiah, the greatest prophet... In the history of Israel, probably up until this point, other than Moses, utters these words to begin chapter 9 of his great prophetic book. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we all encounter dark times, don't we? 
We all feel like there are moments when the cards are just kind of stacked against us. The possibilities of uh, anything good happening are fading. Prospects don't look particularly good. And it is in those moments, I think, that we need a kind of prophetic word. In times like that, we need a word from elsewhere, one uh, scholar puts it, that, uh, that changes our reality, that communicates to us about a different thing that's about to occur. We all need a kind of nevertheless moment at different points in our lives, don't we? And Isaiah's nevertheless is a promise of peace in the midst of war. It's a prophecy of hope in the midst of disaster. Isaiah goes on in this prophetic poem that runs basically all of chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah, and he talks about this great shadow of death and despair, which is the Assyrians, that is looming over Jerusalem. That shadow of death will come to an end, and it will be brought to an end by a person, Isaiah says, a prince of peace whose name will be things like Wonderful Counselor, even, even Mighty God. Isaiah is in effect prophetically crying out here that though it seems dark right now, there's another world, another reality, another truth that's on its way. A world where the rod of oppression that lies on the backs of the people, a rod that they will probably wear as they are taken off to captivity in Assyria will be broken. A world where the clothes of all of the world's soldiers will be thrown into the fire because they won't need war clothes any longer. A day when a government will be established whose guiding principles are not power in politics, even economics. Rather, the guiding principles of this government will be justice and righteousness. Sounds nice, doesn't it? A day where gloom will be replaced with glory. And Isaiah is so sure, in fact, that this day is coming, that this new world is speeding towards the people, that when he writes this poem, he delivers it in the past tense, as if it has already occurred. Isaiah is actually using a prophetic device here. It's a way of writing where he's saying something like, I'm so certain that this reality is on the way, that it's going to occur, that I'm going to write it as though it were history, as if it's something that has already happened. But here's the catch this morning. And here's the catch for the people who've probably first heard this passage. This big prophetic promise did not happen right away. As we said at the beginning of this story, not for 733 years. Now, I was just trying to figure out how many generations of people that would have been in a day and time when most people didn't live past 40. It's amazing that they were even, even able to pass on this type of information from generation to generation. 733 years is a very long time to wait. They didn't even have internet 733 years ago. <laughs> you see, today is the second week of Advent, and it's the second week of our series where we're talking about what it means to wait. 
to wait because we all have seasons of waiting in our lives, don't we? We all have periods of time where we are awaiting something. We are all, at, from some point in our life, caught in the middle of a season where we have to kind of hold tight. And Advent is a season where we are encouraged and we are pointed to scriptures where we see the way in which the people of God waited, whether they waited for a deliverance like the people of Israel did in Egypt and from Assyria, whether it is waiting for a Messiah like so often is spoken about in the prophets of the Old Testament. There are, and, and here's the waiting that we're waiting for now, the return of Jesus, the second coming, the day when Jesus will be shown to be all in all, the true king of the true world. This is the type of waiting we are in the midst of. And as we wait for Jesus, as we move towards Christmas, we can look at what it means to wait. And today, I want to talk about what it means to wait for peace. To wait for peace. You know, all of the gospel writers, when they describe Jesus, use this image that Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 9 as, the, as one of, if not the, predominant prophecy that they used to explain to their audience who Jesus was and what he came to do. The, 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 they, and they all use this image of peace and one who is a prince of peace and one who is bringing peace as a means of communicating to their audience who Jesus was and what he came to do. Echoes of Isaiah's prophecy are all over the place in the Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, we, in the second chapter, we read that the angels announced the birth of Jesus to some lowly shepherds by pronouncing a message of peace upon all whose, whom his favor rests. And if you read the story of Jesus' life, um, in the Gospels, he attempts to fulfill this prophecy himself. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 15, after Jesus learns about John the Baptist's um, uh, being uh, his death, Jesus intentionally leaves his hometown of Galilee and goes to Capernaum by the sea, the area of Zebulun that you heard read earlier there, in order to specifically fulfill this prophecy. And, his, and all of Jesus' teaching and his ministry is all about bringing Isaiah's prophecy into reality. Jesus teaches us about a whole new kingdom that is being established in his presence. A whole new kingdom. A kingdom of God, one, uh, one gospel writer puts it. Another gospel writer refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. A very good movie also, by the way. Look it up this afternoon. Not when your kids are around, though. No jokes? Okay. Uh, and here's the sign of the kingdom that he is bringing. He brings all kinds of different signs. He does miracles to point to the reality of who he is. He, he teaches all kinds of different truths. But one of the primary teachings you hear over and over from Jesus as he lives into this great prophecy of Isaiah's are teachings about peace. Teachings about, how, about peace. In Matthew 5, verse 9, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, 
the, these famous words, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. In that same sermon in Matthew, Jesus gives his followers specific strategies for making peace with their enemies. Turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, those types of things. Praying for those who persecute you. Uh, he says, you, if, if a Roman soldier wants to use you like a pack animal, right? Here's how you both stand up to him, but also make peace. In Matthew 11, he teaches the secret of an easy yoke. A restful and peaceful life is to be found in him. This theme of peace is all over the place. When the Apostle Peter wants to, wants to uh, muster a kind of mini-rebellion against the Romans in order to protect Jesus from being taken into custody, he pulls out a sword and he cuts off a centurion's ear to try to protect Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He bends down, he picks up the ear, he miraculously puts it back on the head of the centurion and turns to Peter and functionally says, this isn't how we do things. This isn't how we are going to do things. The scriptures tell us that Jesus' greatest act of peacemaking, though, the greatest accomplishment of peace that Jesus carries out is when he goes to the cross. And in his body, in his very being, puts to death the hostility, the fear, the sin, the anger of our world. So that we might be free to live as members of God's family in his kingdom of peace, justice, and righteousness. This is what the cross in and of itself is all about making peace. Peace between peoples and peace between people and God. You see, the truth of the matter is, is that, the, that on the cross we see Jesus accomplish in its fullness all that Isaiah prophesied 700 odd years before. But just like the Israelites who first heard the prophecy were also kind of in a waiting period, we are in a waiting period as well, aren't we? The peace of the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied has come to pass. Jesus has come and made a path for us to be reconciled to God through his death and resurrection. This has occurred. He has made a way of salvation for each and every one of us. His light has dawned upon us, right? We sing about it all the time during Christmas. But yet we still wait, don't we? We still wait. We still wait for the kingdom of peace to come in all of its fullness. We still wait for the world's wars to be brought to an end. The Council on Foreign Relations currently estimates that there are no less than 28 major armed conflicts occurring in the world right now, like today. We still wait for the hostilities of our world to cease. Maybe you're in this room today and you have some hostilities in your own life, right? Some tensions exist in your own life. You have a troubled relationship with a friend, a family member, or someone you work with. You're holding on to a grudge, or you know someone's holding on to a grudge against you. Maybe it's not the Hatfields and McCoys or anything, but it's something, right? You, and, and what we are waiting for in this 
phase of life is for the peace of Jesus to show up in those situations as well. Some of us might be waiting just for a sense of peace or calm or tranquility in our own lives. Our, our world feels like a wreck and everything is tossed upside down and we just like want a moment of peace. I have four children. I know about the moment of peace thing, right? I would like one or two moments of peace. Um, you know, when I'm in a bad mood, right? When things don't feel peaceful, nothing feels right, does it? Have you ever been in a bad mood and something really good happened to you and you were just caught off guard for a moment? Like, I'm in a bad mood. I'm supposed to be mad about whatever happens to me today. But I found 20 bucks in my, in my pants that just came out of the wash. I guess I can't be mad, right? But they find some way to be angry about it. The truth of the matter is, is where there's, when there's not peace in my heart and when there's not peace in my surroundings, when there's not peace in my mind and when there's not peace in my relationships, when there's not peace in the world, we are in the season of waiting for it. Where is it? Where's the peace that Jesus promised? How can I access it in the here and in the now? You know, I think part of what we are called to do in this world for those of us who follow Jesus, is to access the peace that has been made available to us through the person of Jesus, and then be witnesses to Jesus in the midst of our broken world, and in the midst of our broken situations, and in the midst of a world where people routinely cut you off in traffic, and to be emissaries, messengers, witnesses for that kind of peace. But the question is, in the midst of our waiting, in the midst of this time when we're waiting for the peace of Jesus to be revealed fully, in the midst of this period of time where we await the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus will be shown to be all in all, in all of the world's wars, in all of the enmity that exists between people, in all of the difficulty you and I face in the, in the interiority of our own brains, comes to an end. How are we to live as subjects to the Prince of Peace in the here and now? How do we live in this kingdom of peace that was ushered in by Jesus? How do we live as people of peace in the midst of an unpeaceful world? Well, I don't know, so let's all go home, right? Uh, it's a very difficult question. No, I have a couple ideas this morning. So briefly this morning, I want to talk about two insights into peace and what I think we are called to pursue as people of this Prince of Peace, as subjects to this Prince of Peace. And the first thing I think we have to know about peace is that Jesus brings uh, peace uh, that is personal. The peace of Jesus is personal. In Colossians chapter 1, verses, 1 and 2, here's what, or verses 21 and 22, here's what we read. But once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And here's the truth this morning. Christian peace 
is not the absence of some thoughts. It is rather the presence of God himself in our lives. Christianity does not say that peace is just kind of an abstract idea that we have to cling to. Christianity says that peace is a person. It's a person. And the way we know peace is when we are with that person. Jesus came to break down the walls of hostility that separate our hearts from God's heart. Through his death on the cross, through, through that great act of peacemaking, he made a way for us to know lasting peace. This is true. Now, let's be honest for a minute, though. That does not always feel real to us, does it? In the day-in, day-out kind of rudimentary functioning of our lives, that doesn't feel like a real reality because we still struggle with anxiety, don't we? We still feel an absence or a lack of peace in our lives. We still fight battles in our minds, even if we know Jesus, even if we have given our hearts and our minds to him. But the truth of the matter is that although we still struggle, the true word today is that if you accept the death and resurrection of Jesus in faith, you have peace. It is abundantly available to you. It's kind of like an ocean storm, right? So on top of the water, everything can feel very tumultuous, very difficult, very, uh, very tum yeah, very crazy. Lots of waves, lots of water. You're trying to cr catch crab. Everything's icing up. I don't know. Uh, deadliest catch, people. Come on. Uh, but under the water, right? The true reality of the world is that everything's kind of calm and peaceful. And very often the mistake we make in our own lives is that we're too focused on what's happening on top of the water and not focused enough about the reality of what is occurring for us in Christ. We don't know that in Jesus, or at least we're not as aware as we should be of the fact that in Jesus, there's calmness, there's peace. There's a sure foundation. We experience our lives as tumultuous and difficult, full of pain and struggle. And they are. I'm not trying to say that's an illusion. But so often when we experience life this way, we need to be reminded that Christ has brought us peace. And nothing can separate us from the peace of Christ. Not difficulty, not pain, not the loss of a job. Nothing can separate us from the peace of Christ that has been made available to us through his death and resurrection. And what we need to do in the midst of those situations is simply remind ourselves of that fact. That though we feel all these types of ways, we feel as though we're blown back and forth by the wind, we have peace because of what Jesus did and who Jesus is and how close Jesus wants to be to each and every one of us. The pastor John Ortberg puts it this way. He says, peace doesn't come from finding a lake with no storms. It comes from Jesus being in your boat, right? So, simple question this morning for us. Do you have Jesus in your boat? Or are you allowing him in your boat, right? Because he wants to be. He wants to be. He wants to bring the peace of God close to you. I believe this. 
And if you are experiencing this world as a, pra- a place of great darkness and great fear, let's ask for the love and grace of Jesus to shine on us this morning, shall we? For Christians, peace is not a circumstance. Circumstances come and go. Peace is a person. And with Jesus, we have a promise that he will be with us. And that even in the midst of the most difficult situations, we can have a peace that passes all understanding because we can have Christ. And so before we go on to our last point today, I thought it would be appropriate to just take a moment and pray together. Because I think we're all in the midst of seasons, and if you're not now, then you will be at some point where peace feels like it is sorely lacking. And we need a little bit of peace. Maybe you need a little bit of a peace infusion this Christmas season. And so if this is you, and just for all of us here and anybody joining us online, I would encourage you to do this as well. If you would just turn your palms up as as a sign of surrender, I just want to pray for us this morning, briefly, before we head on that we would get an infusion of peace this morning and we would allow Jesus into our boat. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. And I pray for myself and for my friends today, God, that we would know that Jesus is our peace. Jesus has made peace for us. And no matter what we are going to face in the coming days, weeks, years, months of our lives, God, we just pray that we, we would yield to the presence of Jesus in our lives. And that because Jesus is with us, we could have peace. And we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that though things are difficult and our minds will run amok from time to time, we might even have long seasons of pain or difficulty, that the ontological truth of our lives is that Jesus is with us. Would you remind us of that this week? And would, you, uh, would we yield to the presence of Jesus by your Holy Spirit in our lives? We pray it all in that name, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Now, so peace is a person, but Jesus also died to bring literal peace to the earth, right? This is what we sing about on Christmas. It's why during Christmas you have all of these songs about world peace. Because while, while for, for the Christian, peace is personal, Peace is also communal. Peace is also a communal reality that should be experienced in our lives. Here, in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, we read this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with some people, right? Is that what it says? Live at peace with the people you like, right? No. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, hit him in the face. No, feed him. If he is thirsty, waterboard him. No, it's give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It sure seems from this passage that those people who follow the Prince of Peace 
are also called to actively seek peace in our world, doesn't it? That's what it seems like. Christians are called by Jesus to be peacemakers, peace bringers. And if I'm reading this passage correctly, it seems like making peace is a spiritual discipline that we are called to cultivate in our lives. We are called to learn how to make peace. Peace is, after all, one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? As we grow in relationship with Jesus and as we uh, learn from the Scriptures and as we become people who look more like Jesus, our lives will grow more peaceful and our relationships will grow more peaceful and hopefully the world around us will become more peaceful. Now, some Christians are convinced that the antidote to the world's problems is just to get people to stop sinning, right? Just stop doing bad stuff, and then everything will be fine, right? But that's not the mode of salvation that Jesus came in. He didn't come preaching, please stop sinning, all of you people, and then we'll all be fine, right? That's not what Jesus said. Jesus went to the cross in order to make peace, in order to take a concrete action in order to create an environment in which peace can occur. And in the Beatitudes, what does Jesus say of the peacemakers? He says those people who act like this, well, they're blessed. Now, making peace is an art. It's not a science. And it turns out to be quite difficult. I think part of the reason that Jesus says peacemakers are blessed is because being an agent of peace in the world is often difficult and thankless. Sometimes it feels when you're trying to make peace that what you actually made was the opposite of peace, right? It's helpful to remember in those moments that those who are attempting to be like Jesus and make peace are nonetheless blessed by God. You see, there's a long history of Christians in this world who have sought, who have strove to make peace. There's also a long history in this world, it might be noted, of those who who have claimed to follow Jesus, but yet bring division, strife, and war upon our world. But I would submit to you today that one of the greatest signs, one of the greatest indicators that someone is truly following Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is that they are not fractious, but rather they, what? Bring peace. Have you ever met somebody who always has an enemy? Like always. They always have to be over and against something, right? uh, Have you ever met somebody who always has somebody at work that they are in a battle with, right? And that they're trying to win. They're trying to get one over on. They're always starting up, starting, uh, stirring up a controversy or starting a fight, Even if this person is a follower of Jesus, that's a good sign that that person might have missed the point of the gospel, right? Because we live in a kingdom of peace ruled by a prince of peace. And in a kingdom like that, we show that we belong to that king by being active peacemakers, regardless of how we're treated, right? William Barclay, the famous preacher and commentator on the Bible, says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be doing godlike work. Right? It's powerful. And as we wait for Jesus to come, to, to truly and finally bring peace to our world, followers of this Jesus are called to work towards peace in our lives and in our community and in our world. So the final question this morning for us is, what do you need to do? What do I need to do to make a little peace this Christmas season? Maybe there's someone in your life that you have not made peace with or that you know you need to make peace with. Maybe you need to be the intermediary between two parties. Maybe you realize that I'm the type of person that always needs an enemy. Like that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, right? There's a lot of people like this in the world. If I don't have an enemy, like I don't know what I'm doing, right? The truth of the matter is, is that Jesus wants to redeem the enemy-making compulsions of our lives, and we all have them, and replace them with a peacemaking compulsion in our lives. He wants to take our hearts of stone, as it were, and replace them with hearts of flesh. He wants a people who are on the move in the world making peace. Now, I realize this is very simple to say. It is incredibly hard to do, right? It takes discernment and time it takes, it takes a concerted effort. It often, takes, uh, it often takes repentance on our part and a willingness to say sorry. Making peace is probably one of the hardest things there is possibly to do. And do you know how I do that? How I know that? Because Jesus had to go to the cross to accomplish it. It's incredibly difficult. But the way we, one of the primary ways we witness to this peacemaking God is by being a peacemaking people. And if, we, and if we lay down the mantle, the responsibility of making peace in our world where the default kind of settings of our world is always to make war, always to fight, always to have an enemy, always to be adversarial, if we don't, if we don't go against the flow of that default setting, well then, it will become very hard to witness the reality of this God. And I think what Jesus wants for some of us, all of us, this Christmas season, is that we would be, we would come awake, that we would come awake to what it means to be a peacemaking people. Not just a peaceful people, not a placid people. Some, some of the best peacemakers I have ever met are, were anything but calm. They were anything but meek and mild, but they were on the move for peace. They were on the move for peace in a way that made them forces for the kingdom of God in the world. And I think that's what he wants each and every one of us to be. So, would you stand with me this morning? And as we go, here's, here's, a, um, here's something that I just believe. Uh, this is such a countercultural teaching, and it's so different than how the majority of the world lives, and it's so different than, the, than our natural impulses, that I bet you you know exactly where you need to make peace in your life right now. I bet you, you see that person's face. I bet you, you know if you're oriented towards enemy-making rather than peacemaking. I have a feeling. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. I just, again, want to offer ourselves up to God. You know, sometimes all Jesus needs is for you to crack the door of your heart a little, and then he kicks it down. 
right? And so this morning, maybe we can just crack the door of our hearts just a little and allow a little bit more space for God to come in and for us to take up the mantle, the responsibility of peacemaking in our time. That as far as it goes with us, we can't control other people, but as far as it goes with us, we could live in active peace with other people. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we pray that you would, uh, you would just make it so real to us who this God of peace really is. We pray first and foremost that we would be rightly related to Jesus, that we would step in under the provision for our sin and our shame that was made available to us on the cross of Christ, that we would put our faith and our hope there, that that's the place it would all rest and that that's the place out of which everything else we do would flow. But we pray today, God, that you would unmask some of the enemy-making impulses of our hearts and that you would help us, that you'd give us the courage, that the Holy Spirit would literally empower us to be witnesses for this Prince of Peace in our, in our world, in our families, in our time. God, I know, I know when I was writing this message, those two or three areas in my life where I have uh, moved against the grain of peace, where I have not lived like Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And so, God, I pray that you give me and my friends the courage, the courage to live like that in the world. Because it's, it's both the hardest and the most glorious thing we'll ever do. And so, Jesus, would you be with us in that endeavor this week? Would you make us a people of peace in the midst of a culture of hostility? And would we draw more people to this loving and peaceful Lord? In the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. And amen and amen. All right. As you're standing, if you brought a gift, you can put it in the box on your way out. Uh, go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus.